Today is Wednesday. It's October 11th, 2023. Eight more shopping days till my birthday. Hi, this is John Williams, and this is the Mincing Rascals podcast. Thanks for finding us, recommending us. Do share us with your friends. You can hear this podcast in part some Saturday nights at 8 on WGN Radio. Listen for me weekdays from 10 to 2. Hey, it's John Hansen, WGN Radio, Your Money Matters and Let's Get Legal. Shows I host there. I'm at Block Club Chicago on our podcasts at WCIU on our On the Block TV show and the Chicago Blackhawks. Whoa, 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 whoa. Undefeated as whoa, whoa. of this. Magic numbers 81. <laughs> oh, it's 80. I'm, Austin, I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. And I'm Eric Zorn. I'm the publisher and author of The Picking Sentinel, a fine Substack newsletter that you can subscribe to by writing to me at ericzorn at gmail.com, and I'll put you on the list. Chicago Blackhawks have won one game in a row with the new superstar, Connor Bedard, exactly half the age of Sid the Kid Crosby. And when the two teams met for the season opener last night, imagine that. The 18-year-old squaring off against his lifelong idol, the 36-year-old. We were down, but then we came back. We scored the last four goals of the game. Bedard did well. He got an assist, didn't score. My speed joke today was something like Connor Bedard got an assist, and according to Chicago media, all of the rest of the goals and assists happened by magic without anybody touching the puck. It was like, if you scored or did anything else in that game, you got no camera time, no attention, (laughs) no mention. It was all... Connor Bedard didn't fall down and had a good game. TV, yes. I think John and Troy did a great job on our radio station. But yes, it was a national broadcast, right? So that's what they were there for. That's what people tuned in for. So yeah. yes, it was. Because even when the Hawks scored a goal that didn't involve Connor, yeah. they went right to Connor. They cut to the him. Bench. Reaction shots. He became our Taylor Swift for like yes. the first game of the season. I'm here for all of it. You literally are here for all of it. I mean, John, John <laughs> yes. is in stadium or the in arena host for yeah. the Blackhawks. So I realized I never said my title on this podcast. Do you think people thought that I actually played for the uh, Blackhawks? I definitely did. I thought oh, you sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just on the scoreboard. You're about uh, as big as Connor Bedard. Actually, maybe even a little bigger. I think I'm bigger. I mean yes. that in a good way, by the way. The word that keeps coming to my mind this week is intractability. The situation in Israel and the Gaza Strip seems intractable. The way Thomas Jefferson described America's relationship with the people kept as slaves, it's like holding a wolf by the ears. You dare not hold on, but you can't let go. Israel can't contain Hamas in one place, and yet to give up on that seems suicidal. So what do you do? And only because... That is the kind of international issue that we don't normally talk about on this show. We all aren't expert on that, as maybe we are more so on other things. I'll open the show today with the situation there. Uh, We will not spend this entire podcast on it. But a few things come to mind. It's incredible how Israel did not see this coming. The coincidence of it happening shortly after President Biden returned monies to Iran, and Iran is understood to have helped coordinate or finance this attack, is unfortunate and complicating. Do Donald Trump's security leaks somehow play a part? I don't know that. Either way, this is not a function of American involvement, what's happened there. And America does not seem poised to do much right now, as the Congress is still operating with one ineffective wing. And what an awful calculus to imagine. The lives of captives versus the need to fire back. And I'll make one last observation with this question. Would a new Speaker of the House of Representatives approve aid to Israel but not Ukraine? There are much more erudite and interesting speakers on the subject of Israel and Palestine than I am. But what I was struck by was some of the reaction coming here locally and kind of the political lines that it highlighted or or elucidated for us, right? So a very interesting thing that's happening on the left right now is that you've seen in the Democratic Party over the last five years, folks who uh, identify with the Democratic Party, according to Gallup polling, there has been a shift from uh, a majority of Democrats feeling more sympathetic to Israel than Palestine to more Democrats feeling more sympathetic to Palestine than Israel. That is new in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, So what you see are folks on the very far left, like the Democratic Socialists of America, coming out with truly uh, 
unconscionable statements that uh, do not do enough to recognize the extraordinary brutality and suffering of hundreds of individuals who were slaughtered or taken hostage. And you see statements from some leaders in that organization just here in Chicago. Uh, For example, Carlos Ramirez Rosa was at a march. He is the uh, handpicked committee chair from uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson. And he was uh, uh, saying the popular phrase from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And that phrase is really important. And it's defined by the Anti-Defamation League as this chant can be understood as a call for the Palestinian state extending from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Sure. Territory that includes the state of Israel, implying the dismantling of the Jewish state. It is a statement in line with wiping out Israel as a nation. And it's a really, really uh, radical statement to make. Not only was Carlos Ramirez Rosa saying that, you also saw the head of United Working Families, which is the political arm of the Chicago Teachers Union, the head of that organization, Kennedy Bartley, tweeting the same thing. At a national level, you saw even folks on the left, on the on you would say the further to the left of the spectrum, denouncing some of that behavior. You saw AOC denouncing certain statements at a rally uh, in line with this. You even saw Jamal Bowman as well. In Chicago, we have not seen that yet. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see if Brandon Johnson is forced to say something about that. Uh, I think he absolutely should be. He has not and, as of the recording of this podcast today. He has not. I, and, I think he has. Time. I think he has. I think there is a statement. It, it was basically that, that this violence has got to stop, essentially. It's not. He did uh, make a statement, I should say, broadly about the conflict. I shouldn't say Brandon Johnson was completely silent, but particularly answering for leadership on his political side, in his core political base in Chicago, making these extreme statements. There was recently an article in WBEZ about United Working Families, uh, about the person I just mentioned, Kennedy Bartley, having a 30-minute standing meeting every single week at City Hall with the mayor's chief of staff. That person is making very extreme statements. That I have not seen uh, the mayor. What do you want the mayor to say? That that there's simply no place for that in Chicago. For that, And Uh, do you want him to make a statement about the conflict in Israel right now? I think it's to- completely appropriate for elected officials to weigh in on this. I usually it's I have somewhat of an allergy of to local elected officials weighing in on any willy nilly federal or international issue that comes about. But the reality is that this is, as many people have pointed out, equivalent, I think, historically and culturally to a 9-11 scale event in that nation. Uh, and there are many people Uh, with ties to that region who live here in Chicago. So I think it's completely appropriate to make a statement. Uh, And also when you have leaders in your political base making these extreme things, I also think it's incumbent upon him to to talk about it. Joe Biden's statement was very strong uh, in favor of of Israel. uh, And Governor Pritzker's statement was fairly strong, unequivocal in terms of its support for, for Israel. So, I mean, those are both democratic leaders. Uh, Yeah. And you're going to get, you're going to get factions uh, in the in the party on that, and there and there's going to be a, a lot of. I mean, I don't know what aboutism sounds like. I'm trivializing it, but but when you open up this conversation to talk about about the, what goes on with the Palestinian people, what goes on in Gaza, you know, the frequent references to it as an open air prison, uh, and how long the people there have been living under those conditions, and the desperation that they feel, and how I mean, and it's. It's a it's a conversation that needs always needs to be had, but it's very difficult to have it now in the wake of this atrocity. I mean, there's no other word for this just genocidal attempted genocidal atrocity that happened uh, over the weekend. Uh, you have to condemn that, uh, and I think you have to condemn that in a full throated way. At the same time, it seems to me that that Israel's response of cutting off drugs and electricity and water and food and what, whatever they're, do, they're doing to Gaza uh, and referring to all the residents there as human animals. Uh, and and it, it seems like they're, they're, we're going to see genocide in response to genocide. We're going to see atrocity in response to atrocity or terrorism in response to terrorism. I don't see how that leads us to peace, ultimately. I think it looks like it's the kind of thing that would lead to a wider war in the region. I think Hamas was trying to take advantage of an uncertain political situation in Israel where many people have been against uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu over the past couple of months for his far-right move to try and shake up the judiciary. Uh, Many reservists saying they weren't going to report or didn't want to report in Israel as a protest statement, and I think that they grossly misunderstood or miscalculated that 
And now we're hearing that reservists who still feel that way about uh, Netanyahu are showing up. And said, of course, we're going to show up. It's a national tragedy. I'm also just kind of torn between the response being, of course, Hamas knows what they're going to do. They're what they would what what they would want to do most to level Gaza, to kill civilians intentionally or not. You kind of weigh like whether you want your leaders to recognize that, of course, that's the one thing Hamas wants you to do the most. Sure. And try and weigh that in your brain along with, well, what's the right thing to do? If not that, and then maybe what? The- then, then what well, maybe do? maybe those maybe it is those things to get maybe it is maybe you are doing what the terrorist wants because it makes you feel better too i don't know i don't know i've always been on the side that if everyone is screaming at you to bomb a certain place and destroy it i always appreciate someone in the room who says yeah hold on let's slow down just a little bit um but i get where their their feelings come from with what we're seeing happening out of there those are my two kind of thoughts right now I can go back to the city council for just a minute. The lone Jewish member of the Chicago city council, Deborah Silverstein, I think I'm saying her name right, says she will present a resolution condemning the surprise attack. But another alder person, Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez, sent an email to her that said, any resolution that speaks on this matter should also center the humanity of Palestinians who are confined to an open-air prison and whose lands have been occupied for decades. Silverstein responded with drawing a moral equivalency between one of the worst acts of terror in human history and Israel's legitimate right to defend itself is absurd. Rodriguez Sanchez wrote back, I agree the attacks from Hamas are brutal and no one should be subjected to that violence. But I also understand that the situation is more nuanced than what this resolution expresses. And I think that's maybe a little bit about what you were talking about, Austin. And it's why I almost prefer the city council or mayor not comment on it, only because this is the can of worms you open up. For instance, is this the right time to also just begin to observe and have a conversation about our support of Israel, but the way Israel has cordoned off these people? It's the most densely populated part of Europe. The poverty rate there is about 40%. Over half of the population is under the age of 19. These are people who have been raised, essentially, in that quote-unquote open-air prison, but really, they don't have much freedom. They don't have much economic opportunity. If you wanted to invent an environment where you would create terrorism or revolution, this would be it. And this is what these young people are living it with very hope for, very little hope for employment. Just one last thing I'll say about that. All of that may be true, and maybe you don't want to hear that nuance now, but it reminds me a little bit about when there's a mass shooting in America, And then someone will say, well, this is the time to talk about guns. And then somebody else will say, no, this is no time to politicize that. Let's just talk about the the victims here and not talk about the guns and get into that political issue. And the response is always, no, this is the – if ever there was a time to talk about that, this is it. One wonders if there's a parallel here for Israel and the Gaza Strip. I understand the comparison you're trying to make, but I I think to use that same analogy, it would be as if an elected official were using a similar rallying cry as the shooter. And that is what we're seeing from some political leaders in Chicago. You didn't They're, hear that from me just now, Austin. You did no, not hear no, that from me. No, no, absolutely not. I, I'm saying that uh, I, I get what you mean in terms of is it the right, when's the wrong or right time to bring up uh, you know, the underlying political debate. How, how, is, I'm going to let you finish. But I mean, how much of what I just said did we all know? Or did the average Chicagoan know? Did people know, think, and appreciate what it's like living in the Gaza Strip? Right. I, I think the average person understands very little about that. But when you have folks aligning with organizations and rhetoric that seek the destruction of a nation through violent means— Chicago City Council is not going to solve much in Israel and Palestine. Those people are not looking to uh, the aldermen of the 25th Ward to come and be their savior by any means. But the city and our elected officials do take moral stances on these things. And what they say is revealing about their broader ideological goals. And uh, I think that actually does deserve debate because because it is revealing about how they think about the world generally and how they may want to apply that here. Yeah, I think, Austin, to your point, 
about that rhetoric. And John, you're, it's a great analogy to make it to the to the to the school shootings or the mass shootings. But I think the point that Austin's making, clarify me if I'm wrong, is that you're saying that obviously people get sick of hearing thoughts and prayers, and gun debate legislation is something to talk about. But that's not what a lot of the rhetoric is. It's as if people went out and said, "Let's shoot up more schools," and that it's not it's not a political discussion about where we go from here as a country. Some people are having that well-intentioned conversation and that nuance that you described, John. But I think what Austin's pointing to is people that are using rhetoric to literally amplify what just happened and in some ways cheerlead it on further. And I think it is a very appropriate time to discuss, especially what the United States role should be in this conflict, what role morally and diplomatically. That's very important. But the first thing you have to do, uh, which you don't do in a mass shooting event, is Let's put some distance between ourselves and the motives of the killer. Uh, and that I don't think was done by a lot of elected officials. Um, not the majority, some elected officials in, in our city. But it's somewhat like, I mean, go to this mass shooting analogy. It's almost like, uh, Israel's going to go to the hometown of the mass shooter and kill everybody there or go kill his family in, in retribution for the number of people that he killed. And, and, and that's, I think, what's, what's really troubling to a lot of people. It's troubling to me, which is that I understand Israel's need to defend itself. Uh, and, and I, I understand the horror, the international horror at what, at what was done in Israel and the need to make sure it doesn't happen again and the need to take retribution against the people who are responsible. I just feel like going back and, and, you know, one of the things that's, that's terrible about what happened in Israel is how many completely innocent civilians were slaughtered. And to say, well, we're going to respond to that by slaughtering an equal number of your innocent citizens. We're going to cut off electricity to your hospitals where your children are being treated. Uh, we're going to starve you out. Uh, that there's something. I mean, that's a form of terrorism, also. And if we're going to reject terrorism, if we're going to reject that kind of warfare, I mean, these are we're talking about war crimes now on both sides, I believe. And so to to say that that uh we we are all okay we're going to help israel in this campaign of retribution or we support this campaign of retribution uh i i think i think goes too far i think the united states role is to express the sh shock and horror understandable but also to urge restraint on israel to take the long view here not just go and and uh and take it out on innocent people which is i i think most of the people as you pointed out john half the people in gaza are what under 19 did you say yes i did uh I mean, I mean, they're not the ones who did this. I mean, I, I, or most of them anyway. I'm sure there's some young, young fighters there, but, uh, uh, so, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'd say disquieted. By I wondered what, dis by and I wonder what, um, restraint looks like in your mind then. I mean, what other options militarily almost does, does Israel have? Right. I mean, what 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 can they do then? What's the equivalent response or the appropriate response? Uh, for instance, well, Eric, I, mean, I don't remember, know that the missiles are targeting civilians. They're targeting um, fighters and what would believe to be, you know, military strongholds. But Lord knows there's civilians living there, too. Right. And, and of course, they're all embedded in that in in gaza and they've got hostages now which which complicates the situation greatly but but after 9 11 uh, i know we i think we did the united states did overreact to that but we certainly didn't go the next day and and rain hellfire down on afghanistan in general we didn't uh, i think we, we no we did it's not. a couple weeks later till and, and it wasn't it wasn't all of afghanistan either i it, it's it's a difficult situation but i think if you, if you just respond to terror with more terror and atrocity with more atrocity i, I don't think you make any Progress. Okay, but are you equivalent? So but as strident as I've been, you're adding on. You actually are equating the Israeli response to what Hamas did, right? At, at some point, if you're killing, if they're going to kill a thousand civilians, if, if a thousand uh, Palestinians are going to end up dead or more, if, if you're going to have a bigger body count in Gaza than you had in Israel, then yeah, that that seems to me to be an appropriate comparison, doesn't it? Does doesn't seem that way to you? No. No, just because, okay. well, what was the intention of what Hamas did, and what is the intention of what Israel is doing? And I think those are different intentions. Maybe the body count will be similar. So, so, so terrorism is okay if your intentions are good? 
Uh, I don't want to answer that question, but it just seems to me like Hamas was specifically, you know, they didn't care. They were almost unilaterally going after civilians. And in order for Israel to respond militarily against whatever the military might is of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, the civilians will be much more collateral in that case than I think what Hamas, you didn't see Israel grabbing people and hauling them across the border. One is a military response to what was a terrorist act. The problem now is that the conversation will go into a very seemingly callous and kind of alien to us as modern people in a very safe country discussion about things like proportionality of a response, right? And if you have an apartment building full of 2,000 people who are innocent civilians, but underneath there is a uh, a massive weapons stockpile that's going to be used to kill 10,000 of your people. Do you bomb the, the apartment building or not? Right. And those are the cold calculations of war that I would, I, you know, I shudder to think that I would ever yeah. have to make. Right. But that's where we are. The thing that I have been looking out for in determining any kind of like moral clarity on this is that it would seem to me that if someone is questioning uh, and outwardly calling uh, for the idea that uh, if someone's calling for the idea that that Israel should not exist, as as Hamas does, and as several elected officials have talked about and and echoed that rhetoric, um, that entails a mass slaughter of civilians. And you could also say the same thing for some people who are at pro-Israel rallies who are saying, you know, we need to make we need to flatten Gaza, right? We need to we need to bomb the hell out of it and, and mow no the grass, yeah, alive, right? I think most people can agree that both of those responses are are detestable. I was thinking, Austin, while you were speaking, elections have consequences. Hamas is the favored party; it's the majority party in the Gaza Strip. That's no reason to slaughter those people. But to some degree, the people in Gaza have said these are our representatives. Yeah, Hamas won elections in Gaza in 2006, but there haven't been elections That's true. there yeah. since. Thank you for that. Really, 2016 makes the whole thing illegitimate. Somebody's parents voted for Hamas once upon a time. It Maybe it's a sign of how desperate the people are. You know, it, it seems, I mean, from my perch here in the Midwest, having never been to the Middle East and not really studying this conflict, it does seem to me that these two entities, the Palestinians and the Israelis, ought to be able to carve up land over there and have independent states for both of them. But I realize that people who are way smarter on this and are way more involved, way more expert, have tried to negotiate this for decades, and it doesn't seem to work. All I know is that escalating this fight, the way Hamas, and Hamas definitely started it this time, I mean, but, but you know, you wanted to hear whataboutism, you can say, well, the Israelis have been provoking them in this way and have been depriving them for years, and, you know, blah, you know on and on, this conversation goes on and on. I, I just I don't see responding to terror with more terror is going to lead us any closer to a resolution. Hmm. I feel like and this is going to sound like a joke and it mostly is, but I feel like this needs like an outside arbitrator that they are bound to the resolution by people that are not emotionally invested into it. I don't know if that's the UN. I don't know who it is that says, here's what's happening next. I That's say we build a, a wall. Let's build a wall. Let's build a big, beautiful wall, an impenetrable wall. I think I think Mexico is looking to pay for a wall, so maybe they'll do it. <laughs> there is a wall. They went right through that, it. I'm telling you, that was one of the takeaways yeah. for me, Is and that was the most sophisticated wall. That wall anticipated tunnels, and they just rammed right through that thing, flew over it, and got around it. I mean, it's... It's a reminder that if people are sufficiently motivated, you will not keep them back with a physical barrier. Mayor Johnson has put his budget proposal in front of the city council today. He wants to spend $16.6 billion. He would double the number of social workers, addiction specialists, and counselors. He imagines a new 400 civilians to respond to crises instead of dispatching the police. That's his treatment, not trauma proposal, in part. The reporting is that the city has a budget surplus, money left over from the almost $2 billion in federal funds we got in 2021 for COVID relief. I didn't realize, am I reading that right? We had a budget surplus that there's actually, we've had some money left. over. I always thought we were upside down on everything like the state. I guess not. It's amazing when, uh, yeah, the federal government 
uh, prince <laughs> trillion dollars, how much surpluses you could create. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Wow, I didn't know we had some extra left over. Do we know enough as we sit here today, guys, about where the money's going to come from or how wisely uh, Brandon Johnson proposes that it be spent? I, I just, I'm really confused how you have a half a billion dollar shortfall poof gone when you're spending more the vast majority of the agenda he laid out entailed a bunch of new taxes that weren't included in a budget proposal like these were part of campaign plans so i don't know how you square the circle here there doesn't seem to be a done deal in any sense of the way to get the revenue where you need it to spend what he wants to spend and close a giant half billion dollar budget hole i mean my understanding from the stories that i read about this is that is that it is using these one-time funds and it's using is scraping off uh, tax increment financing, the TIF money, yep. the TIF surpluses, uh, and that these are not sustainable sources of revenue for the things that he wants to do. And he's talking about, well, you know, I'm pushing them down the road. I'm pushing down some of my progressive agenda down the road. He's he's rather than defunding the police, the police department budget has grown slightly. Um, and uh, and I guess I'm I'm with you. I don't quite know where this money is going to come from down the line. Well, he talks about reinstating so, $4 per employee corporate head tax on large companies. No one well, likes he, that. He, no, 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 not in the budget he doesn't. I didn't so. hear the, that in the, the budget. budget. He's just talked about that, but no, I didn't see that. He talks about it, but it's not there. Am I right, Austin? Okay. Am I right about that? Yeah, I don't. I, I've seen no property tax increase in this budget, and I don't think I've seen any assumptions of new taxes, especially those ones he's laid out before. And the fact is, I mean, it's like, I think it's a 600 plus page document that was dropped this morning. So definitely people need to come through it. Uh, But one thing I wanted to point out is the fact that our own city council is completely ill-equipped to do any kind of pushback (laughs) on any mayoral I knew you were going to say that. And yeah, and every single, this happens every time. There's magic and fairy dust. And hey, I presented about no mayor goes and presents an unbalanced budget. They present a a budget they claim to be balanced, of course. Uh, And it's on other units of government to challenge those assumptions and say, hey, wasn't it just last year when Lori Lightfoot also said her budget was balanced? And then somehow we're sitting here with a half a billion dollar deficit? Huh? How did that happen? No one ever has that conversation. And city council's only independent budgeting office is almost literally two guys in a closet. <laughs> City Hall. Uh, we met, met them and talked to them from our, for our book, The New Chicago Way. It's a completely underfunded office, uh, and, and they can offer no meaningful pushback to the mayor for any of these assumptions. So we should assume there's tons of tomfoolery throughout this budget that makes no sense, uh, but unfortunately our elected officials cannot call that out in any kind of democratic process. The administrative roles are going to go up a couple hundred. They're going to spend $91 million or more on police. I, I, maybe it's all squared in some way that I don't get, but just in reading through it, it all just seems so pie in the sky. I mean, yeah. prove me wrong. I don't think you're smart enough to understand it, John. That's the real problem. <laughs> it's, it's all there. I just don't have time to explain it to you. That's oh, Okay, okay. That's it does seem to me, though, that the, that, the, that the people who really do know budgets, who don't have a skin in the game necessarily here, are very skeptical about his projections and, and how sustainable his budget ideas are long term uh and he's talking a lot about now he's saying well i'm gonna need i'm gonna need four years at least i'm glad i've got a four-year term and he's gonna he you know there's six mental health clinics that close and he wants to reopen two of them but not where they were but in some other facilities as maybe uh extra offices in <laughs> in, the, in other places i'm not sure i couldn't i couldn't make heads or tails of that it, it feels tenuous to me it feels like he like it's not completely well thought out and he's not willing to say hey this is a real problem he doesn't want to raise any taxes he eschewed the idea of the uh property taxes being geared to inflation which was but a mayor life initiatives which is makes property taxes a little bit more predictable and and a little bit more regularly going up rather than forcing these votes every few years to raise property taxes just to have it go up along with inflation he got rid of that and that's going to create a budget hole that he's going to have to fill somehow and the migrant crisis that we haven't touched on this week is going to is costing us what it's cost 30 million dollars so far and i don't know what the projections are for what it's ultimately going to cost but we have you know, 20, 25 buses of new migrants coming into the city don't have a place to stay. We're going to spend X million dollars building tent cities for them. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, I'm not sure how this all works. And it does seem like a lot of smoke and mirrors to me right now. 
Well, also with the TIF funding, tax increment funding, you know, great. I'm glad that there's like a surplus in there and there's $2.5 billion in there. But if you build a budget by taking some of that money and you're going to continue next year at that same spending level, that well is no longer there. And that's a really dangerous proposition. And I feel like people, well, I'm sure Austin is way on top of that. That seems like a really silly budget move to make just to take money like if there was an emergency that you had to fill and you needed a billion dollars tomorrow okay but if you're building into a budget that's going to have to be balanced again next year the well is gone the well is dry that's uh covering recurring expenses with one-time revenue is always a bad idea as anyone who has won the lottery can understand (laughs) well isn't that sort of what we did with the money we got for the parking meters or the skyway we took or from the federal government during COVID. yes took that ton of money and spent it right away rather than trying to find a way to exist without it and the tiff money was never supposed to be for operating expenses tiff money is supposed to be to bolster economic development and you know construction and things like that and that's not what it's being used for it's big this is uh you know uh an unauthorized use of TIFs. It's not new, but of course, it is not what the TIFs are made for. It's when a TIF is in a surplus, technically, the money is then supposed to be rolled into uh, CPS, 55% of it or something like that. I'll have to look all these facts up, but I believe that what they're trying to declare is there's surpluses in TIFs. We're going to take that money as we're supposed to put it elsewhere, uh, but still leads to problems down the road. If I'm Allison Arwoody and you aren't opening up mental health clinics, I'm ticked. That was the sticking point between the two of them. She's out. Where's the mental health clinics? If you can't make that happen, maybe when the mayor gets back from Mexico, he'll have a better idea about how to handle all of these problems. He said, segueing to that part of the podcast. He hasn't done this yet. It's not sure who's going to go or when it's going to happen. But the mayor has suggested that he's going to go to the border to get a better look at this migrant crisis at the source. And it seems like that's not being well received. I actually like it. I think it's a smart thing to do. And it's not to see what's happening at the border necessarily. I think it's to make important connections with people on the ground who can help alert you when buses might be coming, why they might be coming, at what time they're going to be sent along. I think it's about establishing relationships with non-government organizations that are down there on the ground that know you can get to know your administration and create some link of communication so we know a little bit more about what's going to be happening. So I think it could be a cool photo op and maybe that's fine for him. But I do appreciate when politicians, and I hope this is what happens, try to make links to people on the ground because as much as you think that that would happen anyways sometimes it doesn't until people meet face to face and create those relationships i don't know that he's going to el paso though but maybe maybe that'll be so so we're supposed to get like an extra day's warning that another 25 buses are coming i don't quite understand or like that they're not going to come in the middle of the night or i mean like that sort of stuff and the immediacy of when a bus arrives is important i mean what's the harm in him going i guess what i'm saying like who cares if he goes down there for a day or two i mean does that really do anything if it helps out a little bit then then do it that's what a mayor should do if you're looking at just the optics of it and i think it looks like he's going for a photo op rather than say going out to o'hare or going to some other place where, where these migrants are sheltered are they still at the end of chicago if they close that down but to actually to go to some of these places and be seen there talking to the residents there the, or the migrants there about what they need what their lives are like i think that that seems to me to be more of a the kind of fact finding if he if he does need fact finding trips that he would he ought to be doing I mean, does it is it going to cost a lot of money? No, in the scheme, great scheme of things, probably not. But it seems like you know you're leaving the, you're leaving town, going down there for. I mean, let's face it, it's a photo op, right? It's like I care. I'm it's, it, and and you know, politicians do. Presidents go to disaster scenes and they walk around and they embrace people and shake hands. But that's a, a, a federal national official going somewhere to express the nation's concern. This is Brandon Johnson from Chicago going down to the border with photographers and reporters in tow. Uh, what to show that he cares about what to learn what it's. Uh, it, I think it poses more questions. He could do him. both. He should go to those shelters as well. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Well, I think what's one really interesting thing that's come up. Uh, I believe this was after his announcement uh, and subsequent media pushback, which was met with a very bizarre response from Brandon Johnson in the press conference, where in response to the question, when are you going to the border? He said something to the effect of, you've never had a mayor like me. 
I have a black wife and three children. I have a wife. I have children. They have schedules. And plus, we still have public safety that we have to address. We still have the unhoused that we have to address. I still have a budget that I have to address. And I'm doing all of that with a black wife raising three black children on the west side of the city of Chicago. I am going to the border as soon as possible. But I got to coordinate that with running the government and making sure that my wife and children are secure as well. And I just thought it was a really odd, like, <laughs> I don't understand what him having <laughs> A black wife had to do. He was having a terrible day. I've got all this stuff on my plate. I've got a black wife, three black kids, and I'm up to here with everything. It was like that. It really was a strange sentence. I don't even really, I don't even know if I have an opinion on it. I just thought like, this is very odd. Other than so he just wants to get the hell out of town. Is that? <laughs> I had a whole yeah. day to look at that thing, and I thought there's something a better talk show host than me would know to say about that. I couldn't put my finger on it, and I, I don't. I don't know. I think living near Austin and being the mayor of Chicago and putting up with all this crap that's landed on. I mean, that's got to be very stressful. He didn't yell at anybody, but it was, it was kind of a non sequitur. That was for sure. I wonder. And I can't believe I was defending Mayor Johnson on this visit. I still think it's a good idea, Eric. Uh, we'll disagree on that. He seems to really love the cool parts of being a mayor. He loves showing up at the sports events, Lollapalooza. Uh, but if you question him or test him on some of the nitty-gritty details of being the mayor, I, I don't want to say, oh, he gets testy because Lori Lightfoot blows that out of the water from the previous administration. But it doesn't seem like he enjoys that part of the job as much or doesn't want to like talk about it as much. And I just feel like he's so wishy-washy on some of this migrant stuff. Like we're supposed to build a tent city because it's getting cold. Well, it was 37 degrees two days ago. And these people are from Venezuela. So like, where's the tent city going? When are you going to start building it? We have no answers on that. And it's because they're going to be very unpopular answers. There's no popular position he can take in any of this, but Say what you will about Lori Lightfoot. She would come out and tell you what she was doing, why she was doing it, like it or not. And I feel like that's something that the mayor needs to do immediately. And she hated you. (laughs) And she hated Well, fine. At least you knew what she was up to. What I was going to say before the um, Mayor Johnson's black wife comment was that there was a new poll issued. and It was the first polling we've seen of Chicago on whether the city should stay a sanctuary city. And a majority of Chicagoans said that we should not. That was driven by particularly black and Hispanic Chicagoans who overwhelmingly uh, in poll responses say that they feel as though these resources are taking away from people in need in their communities. Mm-hmm. In terms of Johnson's chance to be reelected, that is a full on political crisis for him, let alone a humanitarian crisis. That is maybe the most visible issue in Chicago. I think it will continue to be for the next several months, maybe up in, uh, up until the DNC and through it. Uh, and the constituency that put him in the mayor's office, which is black Chicagoans, are really, really upset with that. And we saw this uh, most prominently at the Amundsen uh, Fieldhouse, which maybe the group can help me pronounce is it do you say amundsen i say amundsen and uh there was a field house there a predominantly black community that was going to be used as a shelter for migrants and there was hundreds and hundreds of black parents and children going to that field house saying this is where we practice football this is where we have you know the few resources that we get as a community we do not want this here and that plan was put on pause uh that is just a reflection of what seems to be according to polling the overwhelming sentiment among black Chicagoans. What role, though, does being a sanctuary city have to do with what's going on right now? Uh, there, There is not any call for, I mean, the sanctuary city means that we, that the fed, we don't, our local law enforcement does not cooperate with the federal government uh, in terms of enforcing immigration laws, right? Right. These uh, migrants are not here illegally, right? I mean, th- these are asylum seeking migrants. So, uh, they're here until their asylum cases are adjudicated. They are here legally. Uh, so us being a sanctuary city, is it just more symbolic? Is that how you see it, Austin? I think it's yes. And I think people are using the term sanctuary city as a catch all for uh, should we have a lot more migrants from or asylum seekers from the border come here or not? And I think people lump that in with the phrase sanctuary city. To be fair, 
people promoting Chicago's status as a sanctuary city have also done that. They conflate the two things, right? It's not as though every time, I mean, just the name sanctuary city alone is a term that is quite broad and could mean very many things. Of course, the nitty gritty of it is just that, uh, you know, uh, law enforcement is not cooperating with ICE. That is what that policy is, but it's not called that. The proponents called it sanctuary city. We looked a little bit into when did this start and what does it mean? And you could go back as far as December of 1985. Mayor Harold Washington signed an executive order ending the city's practice of asking job and license applicants about their U.S. citizenship and halting cooperation by city agencies with federal immigration authorities. It was an executive order signed by Harold Washington in 1985. And various versions of that have sort of uh, quietly or not so quietly been adopted by mayors since. But only when Lori Lightfoot was there and this issue really percolated, it seemed did it really sort of boil over. Has anybody heard of anybody who said, okay, we'll take them? Has any neighborhood or ward or suburb said, all right, we'll take our share. Even the Catholic Church hasn't volunteered spaces, and they have some spaces. To John's point, someone's going to be unhappy. You're the mayor. Decide. I don't know that the mayor would have unilateral authority like that, but you get the point. Has anybody volunteered to take some of these people in? I think the second highest, in terms of dollar amount, state grant that went out, first was obviously Chicago. Second, and this has become a big controversy, was the Joliet Township. Yeah. Not not the municipal city government or the school district or park district, the specific township. And that has caused huge problems, it seems, in Joliet because the every other local government has said, no, we're not, we don't want that. City and you have this one body that does want it. So that seems like it could be a huge mess. $8 million. I've been to Joliet. I got family that lives there. They got Rome. You can find room for a few thousand people. And it would not, I don't think, alternate anybody's lives down there. He said, knowing that they won't put them in my neighborhood. Huge. There's it's a huge tract of land down there on the east side, the old steelworks plant. Talking about Joliet the, now? The, 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 no, no, no. I'm talking about Chicago. I, I was thinking, where in Chicago is this, is this massive tent city or these tent cities going to go? Uh, and one spot that I'm thinking of is the old steelworks plant down on the on the uh, on the east side, where they keep. Every few years, someone will float a new plan for a stadium or some sort of a, of a huge development <laughs> down right. there, yeah. and then it goes away. But I, I don't. Where is there the kind of land that we need that to, to build these tents? Uh, John is right. It's like we're talking about tents. It's getting cold. It's it's the middle of October, and it and it gets pretty damn cold in November, and then and then and then winter's going to be just brutal, and you can't have people camped outside of police stations. From Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. They're not Canadians. Like, this is, this is cold. You sound like Ozzy Guillen now. You know that, right? Let me just throw, uh, answer a question or ask Eric to answer this question. It came up on our radio show the other day when you say, what's the upside to the mayor going to Mexico? Eric, I wondered if it wasn't to pressure federal authorities. It's expected that the Republicans will make hay out of this or criticize the administration. But when the mayors of New York and Chicago go to, go to the border for that photo op, does that get attention? Does that maybe better motivate a Democrat Senate and president to do something about this? Is there anything to that? Maybe that's the purpose of going down there. Well, that would be, I mean, this is a, obviously a question for the mayor, uh, to ask him, why are you going to? I mean, I, maybe that is. Maybe he thinks that's the case. Maybe you're right, John. I don't know, but I haven't heard him articulate that. I haven't heard, heard, heard him say, "This is why I'm going down there. Uh, this is what I hope to accomplish by going down there." All I've heard is that he wants to go lay his eyes on on the border situation. But the border situation isn't Chicago's challenge right now. Chicago's challenge is what to do with the people who are here and coming here every day. And you're not going to change that. I don't think by going down there and talking to them and seeing what's going on at the border. Uh, maybe that's his idea, and maybe you're right, it is a good idea, but but uh, I don't see uh, how President Biden's going to go, well, you know, I don't think we need money. And then, wait a minute, Brandon Johnson's at the border. Let's open up the coffers. I, 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 don't, I don't see that happening. By the way, Producer Pete just handed this to me, quote, a majority of Chicagoans 
prefer to end Sanctuary City versus keep it. It's that poll you guys were talking about, said, or at least this is one, said M3 strategist pollster Matt Podgorski. 46% of those polled said no more Sanctuary City. 39% said Chicago should remain one. 14% were unsure. The pollster is the founder and president of the Northwest Side GOP Club and was the primary pollster for Paul Vallis. Peter, are you suggesting that we should question the poll because of the people behind the poll or just a little information there? I know Austin's got about 60 seconds left with us. He has to click out for another meeting. And I want him to tell us about what it was like seeing Messi at Soldier Field. Austin, go. Oh, bad news, John. He <laughs> not only was not at the game, he wasn't even in Chicago, which is oh. sort of the most fun part of Messi is you get to see him walk around at like he goes to like the grocery store or something. He's got a cute family. They weren't even here. So it sucked. But I was fortunate enough. I, I was feeling the whole time so bad for all of these families who were there. There's so many little kids there in messy jerseys. And it broke my heart. The fact that they've grown up with this guy. He's their hero. He's coming to their city. And then he wasn't there. And then I think a few days later, he actually played in Miami. But uh, I was actually lucky enough to see Messi in his first ever uh, competitive game in America, which was in 2016. And it was at uh, uh, Soldier Field, and it was in Co- this tournament called Copa America. And he did not play in the first half. And then he came in in the second half and scored a hat trick, and it was maybe the most electric athletic performance I'd ever seen in my life. So this did you was- gather all the kids in messy jerseys and tell them that to try and... Huh. <laughs> hey, kids, gather around. Gather around. Gather around. He's yeah. not here today, but Uncle Austin's yeah. Uncle- got a story. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, they would have cried. Uh, but they you know, cried. but here's Austin's luck, though. I mean, he does seem to be at the right place at the right time for a lot of things. So, getting to any event at Soldier Field that's sold out, and this was about sold out. I mean, it was a Bears crowd there. Is very difficult. A lot of people miss events at Soldier Field because you can't get to and from. And wasn't that part of your experience as well? My experience was yeah. So I was waiting for a friend for the entire first half. It took me. I was working in the loop. It still took me forever to get over there. I was on a Divi bike and Divi bikes. I forgot have that thing where you can't ride them on the lakefront trail. So you can't actually get to soldier field on the bike. So you have to stash the bike somewhere, walk there. Wait, what happens to the bike as you're getting closer? It just slows down. It becomes a brick. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, wow. so it's like, it makes you slower than if you were walking. So I get there, I'm waiting for a friend who's stuck in terrible traffic. I wait the whole first half. I don't really care because Messi's not going to be there anyway. And he says, man, I'm going home. Like, I can't I can't get to Soldier Field. You go in. I went in in the second half. I uh, saw five goals in 30 minutes. And there was it was maybe the 75th minute of a 90-minute game, and I left. And it was no, maybe... You even stay the whole second half after waiting outside? He'd the seen whole five half. goals. That's I, see what, five, I saw five goals. The fire were up four to one. That's a season's it, worth. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Like, the, the Miami wasn't going to come back. I, the defensive play was not very good for Miami. And, uh, yeah. Would you leave a game if Pujols had hit three home runs already? And you go, well, that's enough. No, I would not. (laughs) This is part of, you know, I'm maturing as a sports fan and I don't need to see, you know, the last 15 minutes of a blowout Chicago fire game where if I leave 15 minutes later, it's going to take me 45 more minutes to get home. You that's miss maturing. As, that's just maturing as a human. You're just becoming an old grumpy man. <laughs> what, you didn't, old what you didn't hear was that in the last five minutes, Messi came out. And, <laughs> and, and, Scored three goals. And did ball tricks. Uh, Austin has to click out. Austin, good to hear you, buddy. Thanks, guys. Bye. Austin Berger, the Illinois Policy Institute. Eric, we all noticed while it was happening, the guy that was climbing the Accenture Tower on West Madison in Chicago. In fact, as he was doing it, we were talking about what was happening in Israel with the Midwest's top diplomatic official for Israel in the United States. She was on with us, and outside her building, this guy is climbing up the side with some message that he's going to unfurl when he gets to the top. I thought it would be about the war in Israel. Turns out it was not. And maybe 
Eric, I'll let you pick it up here because I think you have something to say about how the media covered that. And I don't want to get in the way of what your criticism of that of, coverage of is. Of my rant? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel like when you have someone who's doing breaking the law like this and you're know, putting diverting public resources or you know, police and fire people had to come over and make sure things were okay and then they had to arrest him and everything else, that when you publicize the cause that he is advancing, and it doesn't matter to me what the cause is, uh, then you just encourage more idiots to do idiotic things to try to get attention. And I, I just don't, I, I think you could easily cover it. The Tribune this morning had a picture of the guy on the building and a little note saying that guy climbed the building and he was arrested. It didn't say what his political cause was. And I thought that was the appropriate way to handle it. Uh, a lot of other media did not. They were talking about about the cause he was advancing. And I just think that's a bad idea as a, as a uh, matter of media practice. So, so you don't mind that they covered it in general. They just you don't like them saying what he was up doing doing it for. What he was representing. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even think they should give it that much coverage. Really. Oh I mean, God, I, I, I mean, it's a guy climbing I mean, a building. I mean, Everyone on Twitter is asking about it. Everyone's no, wondering I, I, the videos. There's curiosity. I'm not, I, I would I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't cover it. I'm not saying don't cover. It. I'm saying like, and I, I, I didn't think the coverage was was out of hand. I just thought I just think that the meant that talking about the cause he was representing, why he was doing it. Uh, just inspires other people to do, let's see, what crazy-ass thing can I do that'll get my cause on the nightly news and in Block Club Chicago and in the Sun-Times and places like that. I, I just, I think it's a bad idea. I think, like, we don't we don't cover, for instance, the uh, newspapers and the media don't, in general, cover suicides because they don't want copycat suicides. And I know this isn't a suicide. It certainly could have been. The guy could have fallen off and uh, but but uh, I just think that that when you when you give coverage to people who are doing illegal things like that uh, and and tell and talk about the cause they're representing, you're just inviting trouble. I'm taking you back to germ school, the inverted pyramid. Who, what, where, when, how, why? I want to know why. I think everyone deserves to know why. There's the mainstream media saying, "Well, I know why, but I don't think you should know why." Yeah. And so I'm not going to tell you. We're we're well. I guess I was going to say we're all adults. Well, we're not. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I can see what you're saying, and I don't like when the mass shooters' names are like plastered everywhere, and I get people not wanting to make heroes out of it. But like, I don't think that really has much of an influence on people. Ultimately, if you're going to climb a building, you're going to climb a building. I don't think someone sees them and goes, you know, I'm going to climb a building. I think there's a larger picture, which I don't think Eric is making, but I do. I don't mention the name of the Highland Park shooter. Um, I don't even mention the name of the foul ball guy who ruined the Cubs' chances of getting in the World Series because he didn't want to be part of a media narrative. That's a different issue. I, that was 20 years ago this week. Did you yep. know that? No, really? Was it Did 20 you? years ago this week? Wow. Yes, it is. Yep. I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, John, but when you were on the air in 2003, did you say his name? <sighs> Boy, I'd have to go back, but I've been pretty good about this one. I, okay. I don't think I was because I was aghast at the treatment that he got and the fact that he's never – he has never cashed in on that. That's awesome. I, I do agree. I think he is. He could have written a book. Oh, he gosh, yeah. He, there was a million dollars floating out there from like Howard Stern or somebody for him to come right. on. He had a million dollar paycheck if he would have taken it. Back to Eric's story. When it was happening and I realized what was happening, I mentioned the cause but not the sponsorship. Somebody was paying him to do that. It was a, a beer company, a right? beer company. And so I thought, all right, I'm not going to give them the free ad because I don't want to be part of that. But I did mention what his cause was. I don't know if I had to edit myself. That's the way I chose. That was the information I chose to withhold and reveal. John, you do what I do for a living. What would you have done in that situation? In terms of saying what, why he did it? His sponsor, your- who's paying him to do it, and what was the cause behind it? Yeah, I would say it. You would say what? The cause, the cause, but not the sponsor. Probably not. No. And Eric, at the risk, at the risk of getting scolded by me, you would do this. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Yes, I think people want to know why. I, I, I don't know. I think, I think we should trust people to be able to take in information and make their own choices from it. And the idea of like shine that away, like someone's name. Okay, the guy at the foul ball is different. Like you're outing, you're doxing someone who didn't do anything wrong. That's true. 
but but you know the other thing that just was a little complicated for me on this, and if I'm being completely honest about it, I didn't agree with his position on the cause that he was behind. Never mind, I drink beer. I'm happy to drink beer. Right. Uh, I, I didn't agree with his position on the cause that he was climbing the, the the building for, and I'm wondering if his position was aligned with mine. Maybe I would think it was more righteous to get the word out. Look at the lengths to which people will go. Our news click kind of gave you three options. Under no circumstances should you do this, or yes, you should do this if you really you know, feel for this cause. Like, I'm willing to risk death to make sure you understand X. And and some of the and about ninety four percent or ninety two percent of our listeners said no, you, you never do this, you never do this. But a handful said that if the cause is righteous enough and you feel strongly enough about it, then I, th- I think we could all think of a cause for which we would begin to equivocate a little bit on that. One last thing before we go, and again, I know here's their timestamp. It's now three forty in the afternoon. On Wednesday. So maybe when you're listening to this, a speaker will have been chosen, but maybe not, because when the Republicans left their super secret meeting today, they were almost evenly split between Jordan and Scalise. The Democrats aren't going to vote for him, so we're maybe going to have a full throated fight on the House floor again. Now, my understanding is also at this moment that Jim Jordan said that he would endorse Scalise. He didn't get as many votes in that closed meeting. So presumably they're all Republicans going to vote for Scalise. But we know this about all Republicans voting for anybody. It doesn't take many of them to say, well, if we don't get the deal we want, then we're not going to vote for you either. And now we've got another 15-rounder uh, maybe in the offing. I think that they were trying to avoid the 15 rounder by changing the rules of their conference. They were there was a big movement that we're going to pick it in this room and we will not leave this room till 217 of us agree on someone. I thought that was going to happen. It was rejected. It was rejected by the conference leading to what they thought then would be Okay, we'll pick between Jordan and Scalise. Both men agreeing that they would nominate the other one and we'll have this big round of support. They felt that way leaving that meeting. And then the House Freedom Caucus had their own meeting and five or six of them came out of that meeting and said, I'm not voting. They gaveled in the House for three minutes as a perfunctory thing they have to do to still be in session. They immediately closed it. And we don't know when they're coming back. They said literally they're not voting, not who we're voting for, but... They're they said not we're not vote. Well, without that said, I'll still vote for Jim Jordan, right? Some said I don't care what Jim Jordan tells says, I'll vote for Jim Jordan. Some people said I'm just I'll vote for someone else. I we don't know. But all you need is three, four of them, five of them to do it. And I think they thought they had the votes, and then that sneaky little House Freedom Caucus got together and riled each other up and enough of them came out and said, Nope. Maybe so they're all, maybe they're I'll hold my breath until I'm purple would be I'll vote for Hakeem Jeffries if you don't give me what I want. No aid for Ukraine and I want one single member of the Congress has the right to call out the speaker. Very interesting. I mean Lauren Boebert came out and she tweeted yeah. uh, I will be voting for Jim Jordan to be yep. speaker of the house. Um, we had a chance to unify the party behind closed doors, but the swamp and K Street lobbyists prevented that. The American people deserve a real change in leadership, not a continuation of the status quo, which is how she sees Galice. Evidently, that's the Freedom Caucus. That's the crazy part of the Republican Party. I, I think they're smart to try to do this behind closed doors, but they may be behind those closed doors for several days now. Uh, and I don't maybe maybe a third candidate will emerge. Uh, I'm not sure what the problem. I mean, Scalise is the guy who says that he's what he's like David Duke with without the, without the, the, without the baggage flag or, the baggage yeah right I mean I don't he's not conservative enough for these for these uh, hard right Republicans I I don't I don't see it but it is kind of entertaining to watch this party in disarray for a while I guess even though th- th- this problem right now is that they can't do anything including approving aid for Israel or aid for Ukraine. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they may try to bend the House rules to allow the temporary speaker some powers to legislate, to approve of legislation and move legislation. It's never been tested. This is uncharted waters, and we don't know whether a speaker pro tem, a job I didn't know existed until a week ago and had never existed, in fact, what authority he may have to lead a House 
So that might have to go through the court. I don't know. It could be messy. Or maybe they'll solve it tonight and we'll figure it out. And that this will be I don't, the state I don't think podcast. it would have to go through. I don't think it has to go through the courts because so many of these things in Congress are just the rules that they vote on each time. Yeah. So they can they can go ahead and change their rules. Uh, oh, yeah. But they if, want- do they have 217 votes to change the rules? Right. Like I'll bet I'll bet they would. I'll, I'll bet the Democrats would enough Democrats would go along with changing the rules to let the speaker pro tem act on certainly some legislation because we're going to need it. If this is going to drag on and on, we're going to need it. Representative Carlos Jimenez of Florida, he's a Republican, told reporters he's still going to vote for McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Why not? I I just want to – I cannot wait for your interview with Cassidy Hutchinson tomorrow, John. Oh, yeah. I've got the book right here. Cassidy Hutchinson is the former – she is the former special assistant to Donald Trump, but also, more importantly, chief of staff Mark Meadows. And it's her biography, or at least her political biography. It's called Enough. And you remember her as the woman who was in the beast, the armored vehicle that Donald Trump was in on January 6th when they did not let him go to the Capitol itself. And there was that struggle over the steering wheel. And she told the January 6th committee that she witnessed this sort of fight over the steering wheel and what Donald Trump's intention was to get to the Capitol. I'm not sure what the point of that story is, like how it lends anything to Donald Trump's guilt or culpability on what happened that day, but clearly he wanted to be there. And she's the young lady that told that story. I'm reading her book. I talk to her tomorrow. I think, if I'm not mistaken, she heard about the Beast incident secondhand. That was not her in the Beast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard too, yeah. It's what you talked about afterwards on your show, John, about the people that run Washington. I worked in the Senate for a year when I was 26 years old. Every night after work, a bunch of us went to happy hour. We were 20s and we were. And guess what? That is who runs our country. It is a young town of 20s and young 30-year-olds who come with such ambition and are becoming part of this, like, cog in the machine. I mean, I don't think people realize just how young the Capitol staff is uh, almost to a T up and down the entire thing. The first election she got to vote in was Trump Clinton, and she voted for Donald Trump over Hillary. And you don't hate her for it because it's okay to not yeah. like Hillary and vote your conscience. And she wasn't a crazy person then, and I don't think she is now. I don't think she was even when she was in the White House. In fact, very early on, she's going, mm, I don't really love this and I don't love that. But she was such a hard worker. She was so smart and organized. She was so part of a team. And she really felt energized by that and felt that they were doing good. And the anecdote I thought you were going to get us up to was after one critical vote that they had won on the Republican side for Donald Trump, they then all exit for a bar, and she realizes just then that she's about to get a promotion to be Mark Meadows' assistant, and that was going to be a lot more prestige and a little more money for her, and this was all going to be great. Matt Gates knew that was going to go down, and so Gates is starting to talk about this, and she says, and Gates shows up at the bar. They couldn't believe that Gates walks into the bar. It's like, dude, we're just a bunch of lowlings here. What are you doing here with us? But here comes Matt Gates waltzing in, and he's speaking loudly about the promotion she's going to get. And he says, Matt, be quiet. Nobody knows about this, and I'm not sure it's going to happen. You're not supposed to talk about this. And then he reaches his hand out to her and cups her chin in his fingertips and says, you know, you're a national treasure. (laughs) And I went, ooh! That's Washington. But there is a lot of that paternalistic, condescending crap, a lot of that creepy, touchy-feely stuff that was going on amongst many of the men she was dealing with in that capacity. When I when people ask about what Washington is really like, is it it's it is exactly in the middle of the West Wing and Veep, and that's the true Washington. Smack dab in the middle of those two shows. Uh, you know, they hear this hell of it. They, it's one of these whip arounds where I get 10 minutes on the line with her, and I'd, I'd like to talk Ooh. to her for an hour. So I'll try and get as much information as I can out of her in the 10 minutes, but we'll talk to Cassidy Hutchinson tomorrow. We'll broadcast it on WGN Radio, and then maybe I'll report back to you guys next week. Okay, Mr. Zorn, good to see you. Good to hear you as always. By the way, Eric's son is performing again 
on the St. Genevieve Riverboat with the uh, River Valley Rangers. I'm glad they're coming back because they had a full boat last time, but I didn't know if that was a big enough audience for them, if it was worth their time, if they if they enjoyed it as much as we did. I was glad to see that they're, I don't know that they made as much money as they might with other gigs, so I'm glad to see them going on the uh, Riverboat in Ottawa. Okay. It's going to be at the Saint on the Saint Genevieve on Friday at five p.m. Friday the and, what? Uh, uh, this Friday. That would be October the thirteenth. Friday 13th. the thirteenth. Ooh, the Saint Genevieve River boat in Ottawa. Eric Zorn, Austin Berg clicked out. John Hansen, always good to see here and talk to you guys. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams. You guys are. You guys are all national treasures as far as I'm concerned. You're not cupping my hand, uh, my chin, though. Reach Eric. out to him, Eric, via Zoom. We're out in the studio. Okay, we're done with this. We'll drop another podcast on you next week. Bye, guys. Sorry all right, I was Eric. talking too Thanks, much. Under the weather, you yeah. under the weather, you did great. Stay well. Stay well. Thanks, Bye, guys. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.